Well, again, good morning. If you will, grab a Bible, your Bible, an app, whatever it takes to do so, and uh, head over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. On my spot here. That's not it. So we'll be there today. As you're headed there, I want to help you understand the structure of this book. Uh, if you're visiting today, we, we do expository preaching, and we are working through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we have just begun this, so we're in week two of this. Uh, but you find, uh, rather, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, what we find there is, is really the theme verse of the entire book of Luke, the entire Gospel of Luke. Jesus there is speaking of himself, and he, and he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's pretty interesting. You can actually take the entire Gospel of Luke and, and break it down into those three little sections right there. Because we see in chapters 1 to 3 how it is that Jesus comes into the world. He came. Uh, and then in chapters 4 to 21, we learn how Jesus is seeking the lost. Jesus seeks. And finally, as this gospel comes to a close in chapters 22 and 24, we're going to see what Jesus does to save the lost. Uh, and so as we study this book, I just want you to keep that overarching structure in mind here, that uh, to remember that, uh, uh, that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And, it's, and that's a little interesting when you consider today, you're going to see in our passage, uh, that it doesn't even really mention Jesus. It, you know, it, it, there's a sideways mention of him, but it's not explicitly anywhere in our passage today. Uh, so anyway, let's, let's get into the scriptures, and we're going to read this uh, in segments today rather than reading it all at once. And the purpose is so that it stays fresh in your mind as we get to each little segment. So our first part will just be the first few verses, but we're beginning in verse 5 uh, of Luke chapter 1. Follow along. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this scripture we have just read is your word. And you mean it for our profit. You, you mean it for our instruction to, to build us up in righteousness, to show us the way of salvation that, that leads us to Jesus Christ through faith. Lord, grant that we would hear this portion of Luke, not simply as the words of man, but as the very words of God to us, your beloved creatures. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we learned last week that, that this gospel is for, for seekers. It's for skeptics even. Uh, particularly those who, who might say that they are skeptics because they've been incredibly disappointed in life in some regards. And, and they just can't understand how it is that a, a good God might allow this disappointment, this suffering to come into their life. I know some of you can, can look back on your life and, and see pain and disappointments that you've experienced. I know that others of you are in the midst of it right now. That's the nature of coming together as God's people. That's always going to be the case. I mean, either way, though, you can sympathize with this, this couple that we're reading about here. And we see in verse 7, as we learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child because Elizabeth was barren. 
Now, there's a lot wrapped up in that one statement. Sometimes we just read through the scriptures and it's just fact, fact, fact and keep going. Uh, But there's a lot wrapped up in this because there is a lifetime of of anguish in those words right there. They they didn't have, you know, over-the-counter pregnancy tests at this time. And and so from an early stage in their marriage, you can imagine that month after month that uh, they'd hope and they'd pray. And and finally, finally, you know, God would give them a child. That that was their hope. And yet every month would come once again the, the moment of sorrow. I mean, think about that. Years and years of hope of heartache, of disappointment, of struggles, of confusion. And then, and then finally, at, at this point, at some point, all hope for a child was just years behind them. As if the moment had passed by. And I, I know, again, some of you relate to this all too well, to this, this story of brokenness, because it's been your own story. And others here relate to it because they've faced similar disappointments, similar hopes and prayers that have not, have not been actualized. And so if I could look into your heart today, and don't worry, I can't, but if I could look into your heart, you know, what, what good thing do you desire, and despite many months, many years even, still find just outside of your reach? And I asked you that because it helps us to, to understand kind of the, the emotions that Elizabeth and, and Zechariah are dealing with here. You know, what, what good things you desire, which God has withheld? See, Elizabeth would have heard a slew of insensitive remarks in this time period. You know, she would have had to answer all sorts of unintentionally very insensitive questions that were directed at her. She would have, you know, faced that constant battle in her heart and that that questioning or that temptation to question the goodness of God to her. You see, because waiting for something you expect to have eventually, that's, that's one thing, right? We, we can handle that sort of thing. You're waiting for Christmas, and it just seems far away. You're waiting for your birthday. You're, you're, you're waiting for the cooler air to, to show up after a hot summer. But it's something very different when, when we don't know if, if what we long for is ever going to come. That's the struggle here. That's the situation for Zachariah and Elizabeth here, this couple that has faced a lifetime of frustration with infertility. And to make things worse, in their culture, there was this idea that barrenness was a curse of God even. The idea that this was because you have done something, that you have a degree of ungodliness, and so it would bring shame on her. In verse 6 here, it says this. It says, Uh, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's that's not saying they were perfect people. Okay, they're not saying they are absolutely have never sinned in their life. That's not the idea. But they're simply saying they're they're faithful to the Lord. And and so this isn't a curse. It isn't a discipline. Right. So so before we read this next portion, then I I do want us to step back and and view this a little bit of a wider angle because you you need to know this. God is using this couple's frustration, their their brokenness to to show forth that not only that, you know, God's miraculous power, but but also as a means to unveil to the world that, that, that God's final plan of redemption is finally coming true. In the midst of all this pain is this glorious, wonderful announcement that's coming. So uh, follow along in your Bible as I read. We're going to read verses 8 through 17, and then we'll jump back into to explaining it. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, wife's, uh, wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the, of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, I love the details here. I don't know if you noticed that, but, but Luke includes these, these details. And I love them because there's the kind of thing that if you're asking someone, they start to tell you a story and these little details come out. And you can almost hear people saying these things that he includes here. Because if, if you notice, he didn't just say there was an angel, right? But there's that bizarre little thing where he says uh, there was an angel of the Lord standing to the, on the right side of the altar of incense. You can hear someone that, you know, Zachariah in this case, actually explaining these details. So, so you might wonder, though, what's going on? We don't have a lot of understanding of, of or generally we don't have a lot of understanding of how the, the priesthood work at times. But uh, this is the situation that's going on here. At, at this time in Israel's history, there was a ton uh, of priests, a ton of them, actually six ton by low estimates. The lowest estimates uh, say that there were 12,000 of them. Right. And, and almost all the other other one, uh, estimates are significantly higher than that. But but at least 12,000 priests and the priests were then divided into these 24 divisions. And they were they were put into Zechariah. We're told here that when he was in the division of Abijah, which first Chronicles 24 teaches us, it lists all the divisions there uh, that this is the eighth division. Right. So this is the, the big red eight, maybe is what he's in. I'm sure it's painted on a water tower somewhere. Uh, that's his division. So then each division served in the temple for one week twice a year. So that's two total weeks a year that they actually served. Meaning that, that even by the lowest estimate, there were 500 other priests on duty with Zechariah that day. 500 other priests that could have been selected to go in and burn the incense on this day. The, the biggest honor that a priest could have, though, was, was to do this. To burn these incense. To, to make prayers in the temple for, for God's people. And the priest who received that honor was selected by the process of casting lots. Uh, if you don't know much about that, it's pretty much like rolling dice to see whose turn it's going to be. Uh, statistically speaking, they, they would have uh, generally only been doing this once in their lifetime. Uh, the way that new priests were coming in and older priests were retiring, it was, it was rare that anyone ever did this more than once in their life. And, and yet this isn't just good luck. It's never just good luck. And in God's providence, Zechariah is indeed absolutely chosen. We, we see quite literally Proverbs 16.33, which, which tells us that these lots are not just chance. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And in this case, the lot falls on Zechariah. And then the rest of the priests would remain outside as Zechariah goes in. And this is the picture to understand what's happening here. As he enters the temple, as Zechariah enters, an assistant would come with them. And the assistant would carry this, this big golden bowl that was full of coals. 
And then the assistant would set the, the bowl down and he would slowly back out of the temple, leaving Zechariah inside all by himself. And then Zechariah would, would take these coals and he'd pour them over the incense. What a moment for him. I mean, realize this. This is not a common thing for him to do. It is, it is this moment he's been waiting for and he's finally getting to actually partake in. Uh, a moment he's dreamed of, just the high point of his service to the Lord. And, and, and in this process, right, so he pours these coals over the incense. And it creates this large cloud of smoke. Uh, and this fragrant scent of incense would go throughout the, t- the temple and it would remain there all day long. And we, we see that, right, as, as modern evangelicals. We think, what in the world with the incense? Isn't that weird? Uh, the idea was that the incense represented the prayers of God. And it was this fragrant scent that could actually be experienced. And, and you know, using it, your actual senses for this. You see, it was at this point then that, that, that the priests would pray for Israel. And then they would exit the temple and they'd go out and they'd pronounce a blessing on the people outside who were waiting for him. And yet at this moment, God had completely other plans. The angel appears to Zechariah. And, and understand, we're talking about a, a real angel. That's difficult for us to get our modern minds around. But we're talking about a real angel. I mean, can you imagine this happening to you? I know you don't think in terms of temples, but, you know, let's say you're at home and you're emptying the trash from the kitchen and, and you decide I'm going to take it out and put it into the big trash can in the garage or I'm going to go around the side of the house, wherever it might be. And, and suddenly you're on your way and there's just this angelic being in front of you. You know, human looking on some level, but, but clearly not. And we know they can't be because they're, humans are always absolutely terrified of angels. You know, it's, it's this sense of, of glowing from being in the presence of, uh, of God himself. And, and listen, Zechariah was not expecting this encounter, uh, the, to encounter this angelic creature any more than you and I would expect it to happen today. Right? This was a thing that was, was so far back in history. For their understanding, it was hard to believe. Because, because sure, Zechariah has heard of angels, just like you and I have heard of angels. But, but you've really got to understand that it's been 400 years since God had sent an angel to communicate with his people at this point. And yet, Gabriel existed then, and he still does today. But, but wow. I mean, here he is before this angel... And the very reason for this is that something of messianic proportion is on the horizon. And yet you know, and I know, that that's not what's on his mind. It's not what would be on our mind immediately either. He's just terrified, right? What is this thing? That's how everyone responds to, to angels in the Scripture. I don't know if you ever noticed that. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, when the angels get this assignment from God, do they, do they kind of get a kick out of it, knowing I'm going to go terrify some human today? Because people are always terrified. And, and the angel's first response is always something on the, you know, along the lines of like, no, no, it's okay. Don't have a panic attack. It's okay. It's always what happens here. And this angel's no different. He, he tells them, you know, do not be afraid. And, and then he makes this announcement. He doesn't even pause. Don't be afraid. And he just keeps going. And the angel begins telling Zechariah that his prayer has been answered. Of course, Zechariah's first thought was certainly something along the lines of, well, which prayer? Was it the prayer for a child that he and his wife, Elizabeth, had been praying for their entire marriage? A prayer that most likely, now that they're older in age, had stopped praying? 
Or, or was it the prayer that he would have been praying as, as the priest of Israel in this moment, a, a prayer for deliverance and salvation for God's people? And it's hard to say which one's in mind, and it's especially hard to say because the, the, the answered prayer, the, the, the thing we're seeing here, actually simultaneously answers both of them in this announcement. It says Elizabeth is, is to receive a child. And that child is the forerunner to the Redeemer that God has promised to Israel since Genesis 3.15. And, and, and so this is good news for this couple, but it's also good news for, for God's people. And Gabriel tells Zechariah, you will have a son, and his name will be John. Any of you know what John means? Does John know what John means? John's not even here, is he? No, he's preaching. Okay. Uh, John means the Lord is gracious. The, the Lord is gracious. That might explain why there's so many Johns in the world, actually. It's a beautiful meaning. You see, when, when the angel says, you know, that John's not to drink alcohol, this is not a Nazarite vow. Uh, it's not like Samson. It didn't include the rest of the Nazarite uh, requirements, such as cutting hair and such. And what we're seeing here, though, is, is unique to John, this requirement. It's, it's just for him uh, because, you know, he's really unique in a lot of ways. He's, he's the only person who in the womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. We learn here in verse 15 that, that John is going to be great before the Lord. That's something else we're learning in this announcement that, that we're going to see later, which is really significant, is that uh, most people in John's life don't really think he's great, the, the more you learn about it. John was, was kind of odd. John the Baptist, not your husband. Uh, he was kind of odd. He was hairy. He was dressed strange. He ate bugs. Um, you know, really, when he was younger, he's not the kind of kid that you think, I want my kid to be best friends with that guy. Uh, he was strange. There's no other way to explain him. He, he grows up, he ruffles feathers, he called people to repentance. He, he was not popular by, by most of the leaders and such. He was, and, and by his cultural standards, he really was not considered great. Not a successful life story. But, but in the eyes that really matter, in the eyes of God, John, John who is later called John the Baptist, was indeed great. He was great because he, he didn't just go around saying things like, you know, you do you and whatever you want to do and, and that sort of thing, but, but rather his life was about doing the will of God. His life was about inviting others to come along with him and do the will of God. And, and Jesus will say of John later in, in Luke seven twenty eight. Jesus himself will say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. We also learn in this announcement that John has a role in God's redemptive plan, uh, redemptive history. John's not the Messiah. He just announces the coming of Jesus. He prepares the way. Really, it's not unlike when the president is about to enter the room today, um, but before he comes in, there's someone who actually will announce this for him. He'll, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. And that's the, the forerunning announcement. You know that the president's not far behind when you hear that. John's preparing the way of the Lord. This is an answer to the prophecy in Malachi 3, uh, 3.1, which reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. If you remember, when we were working our way through the book of Malachi, the, the first messenger in that prophecy is John the Baptist. 
And the second messenger in that prophecy of Malachi 3.1, uh, the messenger of the covenant, that's talking about Jesus Christ. And so Zechariah hears Malachi being quoted by the angel. He understands the angel is saying that the son to be born to him is going to be the forerunner. It all has deep meaning to him. He sees it. You see the word turn in our passage today there in verses 16 and 17. It shows up in each of those verses. The, the idea with turning there is, is repentance, a change of direction, a change of heart. John's purpose is to call Israel to repentance as a mean of, means of preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah. Um, so we might, we might wonder, right? What, why? Why is, why is repentance of any importance in preparing the way of Christ? And the answer is this, because if you don't know that you're guilty, if you don't know that you need mercy and forgiveness, then you're in no position to find forgiveness and grace beautiful. You're in no position to receive the Redeemer with joy if you don't think you need one. John has such unique purpose for his life, and it's given to him long before he's even born. See, he's the fulfillment of God's promise given in Malachi, the promise to send someone like Elijah who will prepare God's people for the Redeemer who's to come. Let's read this third section, verses 18 on to the end of that section. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Wow. I mean, you, first of all, did you notice the way that he explains their ages? Um, these things kind of just crack me up. And, you know, it's funny in a lot of ways. He, he says, I'm an old man. But, but did you see how he explains his, his wife? Uh, I'm an old man, but my wife is, well, she's advanced in years. I... You know, that's like saying she's, she's celebrated her 39th birthday a few dozen times at this point. Uh, it's this real kind of easy way of explaining it. I, I found that funny. Um, so anyway, it's, it's clear to you, I hope it's clear to you, that something goes incredibly wrong here. Right here is this incredible news that John's hearing, and yet something goes incredibly wrong. Zechariah asked this question, how shall I know this? <clears throat> He's asking for a sign. He's asking for proof. And, and then explains why God can't really do the thing the angel just explained to him is going to happen. So, so listen, one thing we learn in this interaction is that, well, it's okay to want evidence that God exists. That, that's why Luke is writing this gospel to us to begin with, right? It's okay to desire evidence. And, and so while desiring evidence is okay, there is such a thing as expecting too much evidence before you'll believe the promises of God. I think this place to be a great warning to us, right? 
Because listen, we're all going to die at some point, and after death, we can't expect to, to enter into the presence of God and plead the case that we just weren't given enough evidence to believe. And we can't do that for, for two major, huge reasons, really. Well, because there is an entire universe of general revelation in an evidence on God's behalf as Exhibit A. And there are 66 books of special revelation in the scriptures that are, are in that evidence as Exhibit B. But, but you see, Zechariah is essentially saying to this angel, he's saying, I don't believe you. And I don't believe you because, listen, it's too late. It's kind of a reasonable response by, by most standards, isn't it? Listen, we, we prayed to God for this, and he never answered, and now we're old, and it's impossible. And so I don't believe you because this can't happen. Which tells us on some level, he was praying a, a prayer that he doesn't really believe God can answer. Let me ask you, do you... Do you ever live that way? Where you don't really expect God to answer your prayers? So listen, the angel responds to him with, with something akin to this. You know, you, you, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I picture it in a Boston accent, but that's probably not right. And he does. He gives him a sign. The first sign he gives him is, is, is himself. He says, me. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Right? That's the first statement. Do you have any idea who you're speaking to here? I stand in the presence of God. The idea is that's something no human could do and expect to survive. And now the name Gabriel actually means something to Zechariah. You and I are just, yeah, that's the name of this angel. But it means something to him. He's read about Gabriel since he was a little boy. He's learned about the promised Messiah in the scroll of Daniel. He knows this name. And you see, at, at that time, this, this same Gabriel was sent by God to Daniel. This is hundreds of years before Daniel chapter 9. And there, he, the angel Gabriel is actually delivering this, delivering this news to Daniel to say, Listen, your prayers for Israel to be set free from Babylon, they've been heard. And, and here's Gabriel, the same Gabriel, announcing that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that he himself delivered hundreds of years before was now actually going to happen. It'd be like if you really were taking out the trash and, and you encountered an angel later on this week and you're thinking, wait, uh, did you say you're Gabriel? Because I know about Gabriel. I just heard about him at church. I was reading about him on Sunday. It means something to him. So, so that's the, the first sign that actually he, he receives. The second sign he, he gives also serves as a consequence for, for his unbelief. Zechariah would, would be mute. He'd be unable to speak uh, until this child is born. So nine months, he, you know, after that um, conception. He's just learned, you realize, the, the greatest news ever, not just personally, but, but for God's people, the greatest news ever. And he can't tell anyone about it because he can't speak. And so nine months of silence, and, and most believe that he couldn't actually speak to anyone either, or, or hear either, uh, because if you look all the way up to, all the way down to verse 62, there's others that are trying to communicate with him, and they keep making signs to him, and if he could hear, they would just, you know, speak to him. But eventually, Zechariah leaves the temple, and, and, and can you imagine the game of charades that day? 
I mean, how do you explain there was an angel in there and, and I'm going to have a son and, and, and the Messiah is soon going to be after him? I mean, what is wrong with this man? You know, what, how do you explain that? Philip, Philip Ryken beautifully says of Zechariah in this moment, he says, The man without a child did not believe the angel with the gospel. And because of his unbelief, he became a man without a voice. Now, let's not be too harsh on Zechariah here, though. Remember that he's got these incredibly deep wounds that he's dealing with from this, this lifetime of, of facing the infertility. Also, this is just a small moment in Zechariah's life. It's, it's similar to when, uh, when the Apostle Peter denies the Lord, right? Before the rooster, rooster crows. Um, this is not Zechariah's way of actually living his life. It's just a, a moment of, of doubt in his life. And again, this, this teaches us something wonderful. It teaches us that, that if we have these times of doubt, we, we should not become disheartened. But return to again trust and bless the Lord who is gracious to us even in these moments of doubt. See, the Lord is gracious to Zechariah despite this, these consequences, right? Despite him receiving this, this muteness until his child is born that, uh, and by, you know, before then. And the child will still be born. The hope is still there. And, and by making him mute, God is actually proving himself to Zechariah in a lot of ways, actually removing those doubts that he had in that moment. He, he asks for a sign, and while it's not likely what he was hoping for, he did indeed get one. Well, let's read these last two verses, and then we'll, we'll finish up here. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God does exactly what he said he was going to do. The promise that the angel delivered was actually occurred. Um, See, God may not always act according to our timing, but God is always on time. He's always according to his his own time. We we do well then not to assume that our, our prayers have gone unanswered when, they may, unanswered when they may just be delayed longer than we wish. And if they are answered with a no, you know, I, I hope that we are learning to trust the Lord has a plan that is better than our, our own. So, so listen, I, I know this might be hard to hear, but God allows even his people to suffer because he desires to be glorified through our suffering. Most of the time in the moment, we have absolutely no idea what the reason is for any of the suffering that God might bring into our life. Our, our lives are bigger than ourselves, in other words. Sure, it's, it's easy to, to see in hindsight here, you know, how Elizabeth's struggle and pain was for a greater cause. It's easy to see it from where we sit, but, but rest assured that, that your struggle is, is just as, as purposeful as well. What I mean is, is God hasn't forgotten you, no matter what you're going through. He's, he's using everything in your life, every, every answered, every unanswered prayer for your good and for his glory. That's what it's working towards. 
So amidst all the unanswered questions in life, what we can know is that even in suffering, we can glorify God, which is, which is why we, we ought to be asking ourselves this question often. We ought to be asking ourselves, how can I glorify God in this moment? doesn't matter what the moment is. doesn't matter what the struggle is. doesn't matter what the frustration is. How can I glorify God in this moment? How can I glorify God even as my heart breaks? How can I glorify the one who gave his life to redeem me? So we do learn that Elizabeth hid herself for five months. We'll give a, much of an explanation for the reason, I, I suppose, if you were... 70-something years old and pregnant, you might want to hide yourself as well. Um, so let, let me see if I can land this plane. Um, what does God want from us? You ever asked that question? I mean, if, if you absolutely had to give an answer to that question, what, what does God want from me? What would you say? I mean, I, I hope you'd know it's, it's not sacrifices. It's not good deeds. It's not money or cattle or anything of value in that way. I, I suggest that what God desires is, is the very same thing that Luke is, is hoping for Theophilus, um, who this book is written towards uh, as he writes this. It's, it's what our, our, we as elders hope for ourselves. It's what we as elders hope for all of you as the body of Christ as well. It's, it's a simple thing, really, the Lord desires us to have faith in Him, to believe Him, to believe His Word. You see, here before us, we have this book of Scripture, and this book is leading us to the cross. It's leading us to the place where Jesus died and to the tomb that could not hold Him as He rose from the dead. That's where it's leading us. And God desires us to believe Him when He says this in His Word. God also says, if you, if you trust in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. Believe that. Believe it. God says he'll never forsake you. Even, even when it might feel like God's incredibly far away from you, believe what he has said, that he will never, never forsake you. God's told us in Romans 8.28 that all things are working together for our good, for, for, for those who love God. Believe that. Believe God. God said, has said in His Word that He will again return to us. Believe that He will. In short, trust the Lord with faith. And when you fail to do so in a moment like Zechariah does in this passage, you know, when you fail to do so, return to the Lord and, and begin to do so once again, you know, trusting that, that John's name is, is truth for the people of God. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Let's pray.